Dr. Spanzer, we're going to jump into another conversation about Ukraine. Ukraine? Yeah. We have gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of traffic on our, on our site mm. for the last recording, uh, as well as sort of the research guide that we've put together has gotten a lot of traffic. So we thought it might be a good idea to maybe take a little deeper dive mm. and try to help people understand what's going on because it's not going away. No, no. Um, the, the Western leaders are trying to meet and make this thing go away, but it just seems like it just keeps yeah. getting worse. Yeah. The humanitarian situation gets worse. And of course, uh, with the 24-hour news cycle, there's a steady flow of talking heads yeah. trying to pontificate on how to get Putin to stop. Isn't more information better? Dr. Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes I, I, I think sometimes it's like jazz music. Sometimes the note that's not hit is just as important as the note that's hit. Well said, well said. Yeah, so I got that from B.B. King. Yeah, so I, I like that. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Um, but what I thought we could do, because we're historians, we think about this in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're trying not to be emotionally involved in it. Yeah. Right? We try to look at it. Okay, how did this happen? What did what went on? Uh, we've read a number of books. We've been reading a lot of articles, trying to dig down into some of this and try to make sense. Just yeah. historically, how did we get here? Right. Uh, because the narrative that we hear from, well, civilians, you know, yeah. who aren't historians, right, like, right. you know, it just seemed like Ukraine was just living the American right. dream, and then all of a sudden, this nutcase somewhere out of a 1930s 1940s black and white movie right. sans the mustache just decided to blow in here like it's the sudetenland in czechoslovakia right. and what happened right and I, I just can't make sense of this like what was going on and where we actually know well, actually ukraine's been in the news quite a bit the last right. 20 years we just haven't been paying attention yeah, that's right. um which we can argue about Amusing ourselves to death. <laughs> right. um, Why haven't we been thinking about Yeah, that? exactly, exactly. And so... Europeans know. Yes, they do. Because they have skin in the game. That's right. And we kind of... Th that Atlantic Ocean has always caused us to sort of be That's apathetic right. over in Europe. Uh, but anyway, I, what I was hoping that we could do is sort of maybe five things. Okay. Uh, one, um, since I kind of pinch hit here as the librarian and mm -hmm. as a historian talk really about information technology and this idea of hybrid war because yeah. i think that makes this even more complicated yeah. and we'll unpack that a bit uh, and then really maybe work through a bit say what we're calling the five framings of how did we get here yeah uh, and how do we understand that and sure. and i think if you know these five framings sometimes if you are watching news or you're reading a report you're like oh that's number four right you know right. oh look no, at that he took doing. two three and four and put it together that's creative <laughs> right, right. um and, and there could be more i think we've just kind of have seem to be five dominant or four four, four or so dominant, dominant yeah, ones right. that we keep hearing repeatedly right. not just from the talking heads but from policy people yeah. even policy people going back into the cold war yeah, yeah. uh you know going back in, and we talk about george kinnon i mean that yeah. that sort of thing so that's what i was hoping we could do today sure uh and maybe start off first with sort of what is a hybrid war yeah yeah well i, I think if i can go one step prior to the hybrid war because yeah. i think that's that is its own modern technique of, of probably an ancient right an ancient it, there's nothing new about nothing it. new it's about just it, yeah. more savvy now right yeah pericles was fighting a, a hybrid war in a sense in peloponnesian war by yep. recrafting reframing only telling certain parts of the story only yep. using some information and there's actually books on the history of hybrid war. yeah this is a, a yeah. common feature but i think the underlying feature of that is that and this is something that can be hard i say as a story maybe this just comes naturally we know this to be the case but all information has to be interpreted everything everything you see has to have an explanation humans don't just collect data we explain data 
So if you've got a if you've got a date and a name and a thing that happened, we and then explain well, why did this one lead to that one? And it turns out that probably in most cases our explanation is more powerful than the data. So you take any any group mm -hmm. of data, any group of information, you got Putin says this, Ukraine does this. So you got six things that all occur in the same moment, and then you say, well, they're not all coincidental. So you're going to indicate, I think that one's the cause. And if that's the cause, then you start to play out the explanation. It's like you do with troubleshooting something that's not working. You come up with your story for it. Yeah. And then you start to tease out, oh, if that's true, that's the reason Putin said, then that he must have had this experience when he was younger, and he must have, this must have happened. And all of a sudden, you've got this narrative yes. that forms the data together. Yeah. And it's funny about us as humans is that we then believe the narrative we just told ourselves yes more yes. than we believe the data yeah then we yeah. come to ignore well that fact doesn't fit that was coincidental that fact didn't belong well and i think that's human right we, we don't live on factoids we live we on narratives that's right that's and right. so that that makes sense We're creatures of story and so if you can manage and manipulate i think you you made this statement off air that how much of what people are fighting and dying over are not necessarily there's facts involved but it's probably counter narratives about the same facts yes and if we were to if we were to go back in the 20th century historiography and, and and discourse and talk about two of the greatest narratives that function in the 20th century one would be something like nationalism mm -hmm. socialist nationalism yeah and something like communism yeah. yeah these are these grand narratives that in the 20th century because of those narratives they defined the facts of the great depression differently in the yeah. 1930s yeah it was capitalism's fault and it was communism's fault no the socialist is the answer that empowered or unified entire nations to walk into world war yeah. and and really pick up all of these ancient narratives that were our, we're the third Rome, no, we're the third Rome, yeah. we're the inheritors. We're going to be the thousand year Reich. The thousand year yeah. Reich based on the Roman inheritance. And there's a lot about that third Rome that Europe and, and Russia are both playing into, which we can get into. I know yeah. you wanted to, you mentioned that too. So so you get these, these narratives that pick up on other narratives and it becomes so powerful that people want to fight and die over it. Yeah. And sometimes to some people who don't understand the narrative go, this sounds stupid. Why are you guys doing that? Yes. Right? This story doesn't make any sense to me. Well, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense to the Ukrainian in the street and, and, and a lot of sense to many Russians who are, sure, sure. Who are you know, across the, across the border. Right. And that's part of hybrid war, right, is, is to get your narrative out yeah. and your version of the story. Right. And, you know, again, it could be uh, in World War II was dropping uh, <laughs> propaganda bombs with leaflets <laughs> or... You know, tagging stories in well, newspapers. Well, Goebbels, let's Goebbels was it? Goebbels, a genius, yeah, exactly, right, right. exactly. So was what Goebbels in the U.S. World yeah. War One, right? So yeah. there, but it was probably today. It's it's probably on a grander scale. I mean, can you imagine if Goebbels had Facebook? Yeah, right. Right, or had the the social media, right? And we're not calling Facebook, yeah, but the technology is 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 so powerful, and it's so easy to control access right. and what you can search and algorithms and right. it keeps getting that way right, right. And, and, right. and we're not saying this in some sort of conspiracy theory way it's yeah. just how technology works that's right. um, it, it, it you can use that technology to sell products yeah that's right or you can use that to not sell products right right it's it, it cuts both ways but doesn't but it doesn't isn't added to that this constant human hunger for the story i mean we don't want facts. We, and so we go searching around for the one that can tell it best. We, yes. we look for someone that can give me an explanation that makes sense of the story that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And because, and this is what tech is really funny, right? Because it's not just the tech creates us. We demand the tech to do certain things for us. Yeah. And we demand new stories, give us stories yep. so that we know how to frame our lives. And so if I tend to tell myself stories that sound more like sort of traditional morals and a more free market, then I'm going to listen to the Fox News stories that they tell. I'm going to yep. listen to the Wall Street yep. Journal stories. If I tend to be a little more concerned about tradition and thinking more progressively, 
I'm going to listen to CNN stories. And when I hear the Fox stories, I'm going to go, oh, that's all just another corruption of wealth and power and right. moral nervousness, right. you know, whatever right. I call it. Right. And then if I'm on the other side, right, I'll think oppositely. So there is this need, this tendency to, to get things into story frame, which is why anyone that can provide it for you yeah. as quickly and constantly as possible become the attractive features. Yes. People run to get the stories because that's what we want. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. And I think what we've learned, too, with technology, with hybrid war, you can actually take your enemy down without firing a bullet, yeah. right? You can really do a more, you know, really get at the morale yeah. of your enemy or really start to uh, probe your enemy some way or even start to uh, try to change the mind, the hearts and minds of, of, yeah, the, of the enemy. And now instead of having to print newspapers or get a story in a paper or some sort of ham operator radio right, thing, right. you know, you can use TikTok, you can use Instagram, you right. can use uh, you can use Facebook, you can use all these various mediums. And I think to the other big difference is when we were growing up, I mean, people read about the war in the newspaper, yeah. right? And maybe when we were young enough, there was the AM and the PM paper. Right, right. Um, but yeah. now most people are getting their, their news from the, this modality. And it's very easy to manipulate. Yeah. Not that the newspaper's not, right. but this is a much easier software to manipulate. Yeah. Uh, to the point where, uh, as someone who's created databases or set up databases, I can look behind the scenes and say, well, I don't really want them to see this. I yeah. don't really want yeah. them to see this. Or you can do that. Right. It has that sort of functionality. And in fact, uh, even something as simple as a library catalog, right? right? When you go under the hood behind the scenes that, the person who set that up, there are all sorts of buttons. I don't need to know the code right. to say, yeah. well, yeah. this collection, we're not going to highlight this collection. We're going to highlight this. Or you, you have that functionality. And you know what the power of that is? It's very powerful. It's very powerful. And I think the, the subtle power of it is that it actually makes it appear as if it's simply just true. Like I, I, I'm interested in like my, my daughters and I'm realizing that we're both, we both live in the same home, the same values. Obviously, my daughters and I we, and wife and I. But there's a tendency dividing us now, I've noticed. And the tendency is this, that I tend to trust things once they've been vetted by someone, right? <laughs> yes. So I want a professional comedian, right? To, yeah. to, because they've gone through how many audiences. And, and so by the time I get them, they've been vetted and trained. And I know I'm getting... My daughters will have any Joe Schmo with a camera in their, in their house that can say something funny. And yes. I go, I'm sure that's funny. But that's not... Like, if you really be funny, you got to go with That's Seinfeld. not Robin Williams yeah, funny. Yeah, give me... And, and I think, and that's a silly example, but I think when it comes to news, even though I don't trust the mainstream, I know who's vetted it, so I know how they're thinking about it already. But then when you get down to the level when yeah. you, this is just someone with a phone telling, yeah. but that they're not just telling you because some server or Google or someone has picked it, chosen it by an algorithm. So it appears, I know what I'm getting. Yeah. I know I'm getting something that's been vetted by a peer group, whether I like it or not, trust them or not. When, when you get someone that's a cell phone at home, you think what you're getting is just straight objective fact. It's as, it's as basic as possible. Someone's talking, well, was it set up? Like, how, like when, I, when I talk to my kids about how many reality TV shows are scripted. Yeah. And yeah. they're shocked. Yes. I'm like, of course they're scripted. Yes. They're not going to waste time in photo if nothing happens on set. They have yes. to have something happen on set. That's why at a fishing show, there's always a fish. There's box. always a fish, right? Yes. And, and the point is you can cut, you can script, you can set it up in such a way to make it appear that all you're getting, and this is where you and I, Mark, I think, not, not just you and I, but historians in general, ought to be helpful. We don't trust any fact as objective fact. Yes. It's always digested, interpreted, yep. and framed. Selected, chosen. There were two different things. We chose that one. 
And I think where the where this social media gets even more dangerous to me is that they are doing all of the vetting work behind the scenes. That's correct. As if to appear there is no vetting. That's right. So when we see a cell phone conversation by Ukrainian, there may have been 20,000 of them, but this fit the narrative of Google, and so that's the only one no, you see. Or that's, when you do the, the that's what's in the algorithm for me. Right, right, and, right. That's I mean, the one that's set we, up for we've me, done, right? We've even done this in classes where we're teaching information literacy, where we will bring in our cell phones and we'll and two of us will do a Google search for the same topic yeah, and get different results because the results are being based on prior searches. That's right. And so, and again, again, this is not an attempt to be conspiracy theory, right? right? It's just the world we live it's in. An it's, an it's an awareness. It's an awareness that this is out there and you really want to be a good consumer of information right. and think critically That's and right. say, well, okay, what is this? Was But also knowing too that all parties here, in fact, even people who aren't actually in the war, China, they know they can put out these stories yeah. and and then you go into the next level of these things and it's it's so uh complicated you can yeah. have bot farms just popping out stories yeah. and popping out likes that pops a story up i mean right. so back in 2000 in the old days you know when the <laughs> internet was it. new and al and gore had just finished creating he, he just created it and we had aol <laughs> <laughs> and got that weird noise when dial up yeah. Even back then, we had learned uh, in, in, in tech school, that uh, IT school, that you know, there was a thing called hacktivism. Hmm. And back then, it was far more primitive, but I could crash your site if I got about 100 people hmm. to hmm. keep reloading your site. Hmm. And people would do this to like, you know... Someone, that, oil company. That oil company, or, uh, cigarette, big right, tobacco, right. you know, it's called hacktivism. So it's very primitive, you know. And, and then mm -hmm. it just takes someone to realize, well, if I could write a program to do this <laughs> while I'm in bed, right? And, <laughs> and so you, you can see this sort of this sort of tit for tat. Uh, so that that's one way where I think the hybrid war has been has way more sophisticated yeah, today. Yeah. And I think it's way more sophisticated and it's probably a more a uh, powerful tool yeah. because we're so polarized to begin with. That's right. That's right. And and it's so, not just the United States. It's, that's right. It's, but, it's global. But go back to, I think you made, you made a really good point because the, what seems to be happening in Ukraine, this happens with almost every issue in this country, which I know Europeans sometimes get weirded out by, is because we have that in our country, what we think, we tend to drag all of these world issues and then we pop them back into our yes. conflicting narratives that's and right. they become yet another reason. So whether it's a mask yeah a vaccine yeah or a foreign war yeah becomes yet another reason for us to re sort of package those inside the yep. narrative so that we can be at odds with. so it's our cross narratives here that now are starting to determine how we view the world we view the world us. exactly somehow exactly. the U ukraine is playing directly into american social and political everything problems. gets put through the same grid right yeah and, and so that's where i think just knowing where some of this stuff goes yeah, from yeah. there's some really good uh there's some good articles on hybrid war. There's some great books on the history of it with, done by scholars, yeah. not people trying to do hybrid war. Yeah, right. uh, and it's good to know that, that when you hear these stories coming out from even whether it's the Pentagon, because what happens too, and it's not, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to throw America under the, under the bus here, yeah. but when you're in that type of war, you have to use the same type of ammunition, yeah. right? You, you can't say we're above that, we're not going to do yeah. that. You, you have to be in the hybrid war. Um, that's that's the same reason with hybrid war. You can crash servers, yeah. right? You yeah. can hack internet. You can uh, because we're so connected now. Yeah. It's you know I was noticed to watch a commercial and someone had a security camera and they're like, oh I sleep so much better at night because I have this camera and in my head I'm thinking until someone hacks the server, <laughs> right. right? Because yeah. there's a big difference between and in fact in this commercial there's a guy who doesn't have the camera and he actually sits in his tree and watches his house. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like he can't be hacked. <laughs> yeah, right. right? So, oh, 
So he's unhackable. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's we see this, and then also there's the technology wars that are going to go on even in how they fight the battles. Yeah. Right, you can jam each other's satellites. You yeah. can you know so all these types of things are going to go on. Yeah. Um, and it's just good to know it, just and, to, to, to call that, it out. That's right. It is important to call it out. And I want to ask you this question, Dr. Draper, because as I've been wrestling through this thing and talking with students, I, I've come to a bit of a, a loggerheads in my own mind. Maybe, okay. maybe you can help me unjam this. And that, that as a historian, I want to be accurate. There's an, there's, an, there's an automatic drive for me to not accept simple narratives for things and to always challenge my own. I think you as a historian would know whenever we approach something we think we've studied before, no, I know going in I'm going to have to change my mind on it because I'm going to be introduced to new information, new frameworks, History is a constant um, effort. It's a constant practice in breaking down your awareness of things yep. and relearning. So I, I come with that automatic curiosity. So students ask me questions about Ukraine. I am trying to expose my own lack of understanding. Like, what don't I know? What am I yeah, missing, yeah, yeah. right? But as I'm explaining to students, well, students probably aren't coming from that angle, but I want them to. Mm -hmm. not, not because I'm asking them to be historians. They can't master it. I haven't mastered it either. But there's something else going on here, Dr. Draper, that really concerns me about our students and our public is that these narratives, while they organize information, we use a narrative to say, okay, here's why Putin did this. Great, I can go to bed at night knowing I understand what's going on. But there's another, there's another downside of this, and that is once I start to see things this way, I start to make judgments about the rest of my world based on that. Like, now I know how things go wrong. Bad people get yes. hold of power. And then I start to make evaluations because if it's proven there, that really this is just about a bad man that does bad things. I wonder why my economy is falling. Oh, there must be another bad person. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but what I want to ask you is, is it true that these narratives that we use have negative impacts on us elsewhere? Not just getting the Ukrainian war wrong, which is easy to do, we're all going to do. Yeah. But that if we start buying a very simplistic narrative there, we then turn and then start applying it in dangerous ways in our personal lives and our public lives. So is it important to get the historiography right? Or can we just say... Let's fight the let's fight the hybrid war. Eh, I think this is what it is, and if I say this, it's easier to beat Putin. But do we actually have a responsibility to get our our narrative right? Yeah. Our historiography right so that we learn to approach people well or live our lives well. Help me help me connect yeah, these and two I, things. As you're saying this, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about somebody who we're both a fanboy of, uh, Charles Taylor. Yeah, yeah. And I think these narratives actually start to shape your social imaginary. Yes. Right? Yes, because you start right. saying yeah. this is how the world works. Right. And I don't, and exactly. I mean, and it's, it's, I haven't really evaluated it. It's just, I've accepted this exactly. narrative that Hitler, Putin, Mussolini, boom. And so whenever there is any type of invasion, whether it's economic, whether, whatever it mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. I just have to look for the Hitler, Mussolini, or Putin. And bingo. And I got it solved, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, because what is social sure. imaginary for Taylor? It is how you think the world works. And, yeah. and these, these narratives can actually... Uh, shape them, right? That's you right. can you can shape people's social imagination by changing narratives, yeah. right? And eventually, if people start to accept it, yeah. I mean, Goebbels didn't know that, right? right? He didn't have the <laughs> language for it, it, but he knew what he was doing. Yeah, but he did. Um, yeah. And that's that's sort of the idea of propaganda. Mm. Propaganda is not always a negative thing, right? It, it can be a positive thing as well. You can have propaganda to be abolitionist. Yeah. So yeah. it's it it what you're trying to do oftentimes is. You want to one, hopefully you, you do moral suasion. Mm -hmm. The other hand, I think what you really add is, can I change your imagination? Yeah. Can I can you imagine a world that operates this way, right. Right. not that way? And that takes a lot of work. It does, but I think that's that's spot on, Dr. Draper, and that's very helpful because I, I think then we have to be, as cons not, consumer is the wrong metaphor, but we consume information. 
but we're being formed by it. Yeah. Right. This Marshall McLuhan sort of idea that yeah. the information and the medium also forms us. But I think you're exactly right. If if we confirm very simplistic narratives on things, and I think the simpler they are, the more powerful they are. If you buy a simple narrative on this complicated issue, your imagination is now sort of atrophied down to where it now is looking for that same pattern to function elsewhere. And if, if nothing is defined American, rightly or wrongly, I'm not even saying that we aren't saying, the idea of conspiracy or that people in power unwittingly or people in power subversively have ruined America, individual chances, that which I think has happened both right and left has yep. become probably the most profound social imaginary of our modern era. Of the 21st era. century. Of the 21st century. Yeah. We are conspiracy-driven people. Yeah. And this, what I guess now that you say it, I think this is exactly right. This narrative to me, why it bothers me so much is it's confirming that. It's concerning that imaginary. We're confirming yes. the imaginary that something is vastly complex in my mind as Ukraine, Russia relationships and Crimea and geopolitics and personalities. All of that's boiled down to one explanation that makes so much sense that now we confirm the social imaginary that whenever there's violence, it's always because there's a bad guy behind the scene pulling the trigger. And if we could eliminate him yep. or her or it or whatever, yes. somehow this all just smooths out. Yes. That, that imaginary, Dr. Draper, to me, is just really yeah. And I think the conspiracy. I think the internet helps the conspiracy theory thing, too, because you figure if you were a conspiracy theorist in the 60s, you, know, yeah. you might have subscribed right. to underground newspapers right. and, and pamphlets and stuff and various ephemera. I've actually been to an archive that just collected this oh, kind of cool. stuff. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but everyone had to have a mimeograph machine, <laughs> right, right, right? I mean, right. that was that was the blog of yeah, uh, right. of the 1960s. Where today, anybody can get onto the computer, do some Google searches, and maybe if they get to the 20th page, <laughs> the mm -hmm. 20th O. Yeah, the 20th, 20th O, the second or third O, usually in Google. I don't even get that well, far. Well, usually you get 10 pages, and then you can go to another 10 Oh, pages. you're saying the depending second O now. The, yeah, yeah, depending on how good the search is, right? right? right. And, and, and you might, or you find there are websites now or, or, or back channels where you can have sort of non-mainstream media. And people think, oh, this must be the truth because it's not out there. Why mm -hmm. is it not out there? Right. right? And you, So the, just the suspicion right. of it not being out there right. assumes that there is a cabal. Of right, which approves. Yes, and approves. you can spend hours kind of you know, in these spaces. So the, you could, the technology actually brings these people together, right. right? Where before, maybe they had a convention yeah. you know, in a yeah. bunker somewhere. Yeah. Now, the, you can, you, so you have so the, the sort of democratization of information yeah. has helped start creating this. And so let me, let me move into our next stage in sort of the historiography. Sure, and, sure. And I don't know if you've had this question, but I've had students say to me, Dr. why is Ukraine happening? <laughs> and I say, and, and I guess I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> and, say. And, and, and you should see their face. Yeah. They're like, but you're you supposed the to answer, know. You're, the story. You know, like, yeah, exactly. You're supposed to know. And I'm like, I'm like, I got five working theories. <laughs> right, right. At the and same I'm working time. on another five after that. And, yeah. and they're like, oh. And I'm like, remember historiography? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that's that where I think some people who, who aren't thinking at that level, where they're going to say is, oh, well, I know. Exactly. Right? He's crazy. Here's why. Uh, America should have gotten fault. involved. Right, yeah. uh, NATO's the reason. Right, right, right. Uh, all these various explanations or, you know, those people have always wanted to invade somebody. Right, right. Um, and, and then, and that might be a funny line on SNL. Right. But it's not good scholarship yeah. it's not good thought yeah but i i've said that to a number of students. I, said, I can't really tell you definitively yeah. this is why this happened uh i said maybe the historians can get that a little clearer in 100 years maybe yeah maybe then right? there'll be 10 different schools well yeah, yes yeah. because you only get tenure if you take someone else's theory <laughs> yeah. down 
but but I said that, and I, th- I said I'm not trying to I'm not trying to like you know play a show game with you. I'm trying to be honest with you yeah. and say this is a everything is far more complicated right. than you see on a screen. That's right. That's the screen right. is two dimensional. It's two dimensional, yeah. and 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 we live in three dimensions, and the world on the screen is always going to be two dimensional, and what's actually going on on the ground and in the situations is far different. Yeah. The other thing I say is this. Perception eats reality for lunch every day of the week and <laughs> right. twice on Sunday. Right. Right. I say all the time in history, I'm always interested in how people are perceiving the that's situation because right. sometimes that's more important than what's actually happening. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Because that's how people respond. They respond on their perception, not actually what's happening. Okay, so let's tie the conversation together before we jump into the historiographical yeah. methods that we're working with right now. And that is what, what I think you've tied together here. Those listening, students of ours, if you're listening, there's every reason to be sober and there's every re- reason to be wise and discerning because your soul's at stake in some sense. I mean, war always does this, right? Yeah. At some point in the middle of it, you don't have a choice to stop and think. You're trying to survive. You have to respond. You have to fight. You have to flee, whatever it is. But if you're not, you have a chance to soberly think this through so that you get to act and judge wisely. And I think these narratives are going to constrain your heart and soul to oversimplify massively complex things and choke out of you creativity and awareness, humility, right? And understanding that's broader than what you're being given. So. I think what I think what we're trying to say is you you there's there's more reasons than just getting it right yeah. to be sober and discerning to be able to listen to multiple views. And what we're going to do now is look at at least what we've gotten more may come out of our conversation, but yeah. at least four it seems yeah. governing historiographies right now that seem to be managing. That we've kind of dug around. Yeah, and we've seen come up. figured out. And and one thing I also want to say too before we move there is that. Um, there are times when there are so many conflicting stories. We're in this space. And what, what the people oftentimes who are doing the hybrid war and this type of thing, what they want you to do is throw your hands up and say, I don't know. Yeah. And there are times when you just might not know. Yeah. Right. You might have a story come out from China, a story come out from the Pentagon, and a story come out from the, the Kremlin. And the truth is some sort of combination of all three right. of them. But you're right. not sure how to combine them. That's right. Okay. And, and this is where I think as a Christian, you have to get to, well, what do you, what do you know? Yeah. Right. And you do know, regardless, it is always bad, always wrong (laughs) when you blow up maternity wards. Yeah. Right. That's never that's never a good good reason for that. Yeah. yeah, That's never a good thing. Uh, You know, it's always wrong when these things happen, regardless of all the other subterfuge going around. And sometimes you just has to get that simple. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you're 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 going to jump up and down. But it's sometimes you just got to get down to the basics and say, this is wrong. This is always wrong, right. regardless of the subterfuge. Right. I always know you don't do this. Yeah, right. uh, and I think that's what's really important in this is there are things that are actually happening on the ground that are just wrong. Yeah. Right. As yeah. a Christian, they're wrong. They're always wrong. They're wrong right. if Russia did it. They're wrong if the Germans did it. They're wrong if the Americans did it. Yeah. They're always wrong. Right. They're wrong whether they happen in Ukraine or Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. They're always wrong. Right. And, and I think that's important for us to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, and I think to add to that, that somehow you're asked to say, this is always wrong, and yet I still want to understand it. And sometimes exactly. sometimes that's hard to do. And we, we do this when we do this in our classes, right? We deal with issues like race or we do issues of, um, you know, patriarchalism, you know, at certain yeah. parts in history. You want to be able to say, I'm going to say that this is wrong. At the same time, I want to understand why yes. and how it happens. yes. Yes. And that's the space I think we get to be in. Yeah. Not that it's always fun. I always tell students teaching history is psychologically painful. Yeah. You deal with death, murder, rape on a grand scale over centuries. Yeah. yeah. But that 
that doesn't mean that you don't have to understand why humans do what they do yep. to better understand how they function and who I am as a person, right? Rather than simply just judge it and walk away because that gives you no discernment. No. How to avoid it, how do humans really function? What does God require of me in yes. this moment? Because mm-hmm. Jesus was very clear that he wanted us being very wise. Yes. He wanted us very discerning. So this is what this is our attempt here, and I, I, I'm glad you start there, Mark, I think, uh, Mark, we did in our last one too, is we don't want to, as we're about to simply just look at this almost like it's a historical plaything mm. that we're not really intending to simply just ignore the moral the moral implications exactly. here right exactly. we've drawn very hard lines we know what's evil at the same time we now have to be discerning about why it's happening yeah so we've and that's not, really what this is this that's what is, this is yeah why is the evil happening you know like can right. we get into how did we get to this point yeah. and i think that's where a lot of people are struggling yeah right and that's and and in a way to to to, to allow it to be complex to not to not oversimplify it so that you become someone who's wiser about these sorts of things, as we're trying to be also. So we're, we're looking, Dr. Travers, we got talking, we found at least four. Yeah. Why don't you hit us with the first one? Yeah, the, the first one um, has been uh, probably a little more controversial, right? Mm. The first one we've come across is that uh, what we're experiencing in Ukraine today is the product of 30 years of bad foreign policy. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, that the, basically the way America and America more so gets a beat up for this than NATO even. Mm. That the way America dealt with Russia and the former Soviet bloc after the Cold War has created this situation by one, expanding NATO, um, really kind of ever since Putin has come into power, really just kind of isolate him Mm -hmm. uh, where he's sort of the problem. And Yeltsin, he was okay, but this other guy, we don't like him. And, And so... And there has been even, and I think this is so important, that even the best minds in Cold War strategy, Mm. people like Kissinger, people like George Kennan, there was debate. What do you do after the Cold War? What do you do? It was the same way in 45. What do we do with Germany? Right. Right? And, you know, you had Patton who was like, well, we're here. We should take out the Russians while we're here. (laughs) Right. Right? And we didn't do that. Yeah. but the right was, what do we do with Germany? And, do we rebuild it? Do, you, do we rebuild it? Do we do we do we just punish them? Do we what do we do? Right. Uh, and I think I think in the Marshall Plan and and, and what we did in Germany was balanced in yeah. this regard. I knew people. I've known people who were German POWs. Yeah. Uh, who after the war they were captured by the Allies and they were put to work in labor camps, rebuilding France. Yeah. Okay. Now. That might not go over well, yeah. right? But they spent six years rebuilding France in labor camps, and then they were free to go. To, there was a sense that you have to pay for what you did. Yeah. On the other hand, um, we spent a lot of money rebuilding Western Germany. Uh, I've been to sites in Germany where I thought this was the original. No, this is Marshall Plan money. They <laughs> rebuilt the, the, the 15th century building to be an exact replica. Right. I still don't know why they were charging Americans to go there. I thought we already paid for it. But So we, we did stuff like that. Uh, same with Japan. It was, And again, I think the, the, the fear of the Cold War played a big role in yeah. this. And a number of Germans really found that, well, West Germans found that the way people like Truman and Eisenhower handled the Germans actually made the relationship get a lot smoother. They yeah. weren't ground down into the yeah. dirt. Uh, there was a sense of an olive branch was 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 put out there, and so uh, some people that well, do we do the same approach with Russia yeah. after after the Cold War? 
Uh, and I think, and again, this is always hard in American politics because you know every four years you could have a different commander yeah. in chief yeah. uh, who comes in with a completely different outlook, different team, different ideology. Uh, so the consistency of American foreign policy is often <laughs> it's a four-year run. Eight exactly. years if you're lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and so we start to see there was sort of this sense of okay, can we, can we work with Yeltsin to rebuild Russia? Uh, buddy up to him, you know, kind of put out an olive branch and sort of treat the uh, the Soviet bloc sort of in a benign way, yeah. uh, not running right into saying, OK, now let's go sign up all these Soviet states and let's right. get NATO right on the border of Russia yeah, yeah. and just really set this in. Uh, and so this is where there's a, there's some books that will be on this research guide that we've, yeah. we've been putting together uh, that they get at this, that yeah. they try attempt to say that this was a model that was out there. Uh, that we don't do that. Don't go in there. Yeah. Don't build this up. Just let it go. Yeah. Um, let it just let it happen and just let things go. Uh, but again, it's it's easy to say that. The other thing was at the time, uh, the West was also very concerned about nuclear proliferation. And yeah. of course, we know Ukraine was a, a hot spot for right. nuclear weapons. So there was a fear. Well, if we don't do something with these Soviet yeah. states, what's going to happen to all these nukes? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I read one historian who said there were some advisors, even in 90 and in 91, when they saw things going bad in the Soviet Union, they actually wanted to financially prop the Soviet Union up, which mm. sounds crazy since we had to hide under the desk in the 70s. Yeah. But the fear was, at least with the Soviet Union, we can work with them yeah. and there'll be there'll be some sort of nuclear stability. Yeah. But if that falls... It's chaos. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. That was the biggest fear. Yeah. I mean, I remember that in the 90s. People just like, where are these weapons going to be? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so, again, this is always, this is realism. This is this is real politik. Yeah. Um, when you're dealing with an issue and there's no good solution. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the arguments is that America did not follow the advice of people like George Cannon. They did go in and yeah. make nice with all these uh, Soviet states and well, basically built NATO Right up and to this Russia's is, door. And for those of you that don't know, and I've got a lot of this question, so maybe just a quick backtrack and define terms, because a lot of people understand two things about what you're saying there, just as clarification. One, this theory believes that there is something intrinsically different between Russia and Europe. That Russia has its own culture, it has its own reason to defend its own culture and its own way of doing things, which is not European. And that that's one assumption, I yeah. think, that is underlying. And the other one, and, and, and Dr. Draper, Mike, Mark keeps mentioning this idea of NATO, that for those of you that are not Cold War babies, yes, or we knew what NATO was just because it was a regular part of conversation yes. at the time, North Atlantic Treaty Organization was organized and built by America to unify European states into a military fighting force because we didn't want to rearm Germany, yep. West Germany. We didn't want to rearm European forces. So the U.S. got in and funded and systematized the military of Europe yep. to turn it into one single fighting force, yep. primarily to defend against a proper a future one-day incursion by the Russians. Yep. It was defensive yep. in one sense. Once the once the curtain fell and once the Eastern Bloc went and Europe started expanding and allowing countries that were once allies, forced or otherwise, allies of Russia to join NATO, they were now belonging to a military defensive organization Against designed to, to alienate Russia. And so I think for a lot of people that don't like this theory, say, well, there's nothing that different. Europe's never been a threat. I've read this in several articles. Europe was never a threat to Russia. No one's going to send tanks from Germany into Moscow. Well, that's the assumption that somehow NATO is not perceived as an existential threat yeah. to Russia. And unfortunately, that's just historically not the case. Historically, yeah. it's designed to be that. And so, historically, Russia has been a threat. 
yeah. to Europe. I mean, exactly. Like you had said earlier, a th- they were an expansionist right. empire. Right, yeah. and Napoleon to, to and, Kaiser and, and to vice Hitler, versa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what this historiographical model appreciates, and I think you're right, your longer story says this has been going on since World War II, quite frankly. And sure. You mentioned um, you know, when, when they institute the Morgenthau Plan and forcibly de-industrialize Western Germany, Stalin's happy. The minute we re-industrialize Western Germany, that's when he puts a blockade on Berlin. Right. Because he's saying... No, we won't allow a Germany rebuild at any cost. Now, Stalin didn't seem to care a whole lot about territorial expansion at that point. Right. But he had every reason to be terrified of an industrial Germany. Yes. And after you've lost, I don't know what the number between the two wars, maybe 15, 20 million people mm-hmm. between two wars, you might have reason to believe with Stalin that's the case. Yep. yep. And so, so this argument would say, that on this one model, is that where the argument, I think you're right, around Yeltsin in those years, Bush and even early Clinton said, we are not going to forget what the line was. Not one more no, inch. Not one more inch. That, more was, inch. that was actually, um, it was actually, uh, well, it was George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, James Baker, James Baker who made that, that statement. Okay, yeah. right. So that idea of, uh, was a way of, I think, what, what you've been saying, it's just somebody here's the backstory of working with Yeltsin and saying, we refuse to go one more inch on this. Yes. We're going to play very carefully and we won't, we won't allow it. And then something changes, and I think you see this in 06 to 08, and I think it was a major Belgrade well, conference. I think you also saw some changes in the 90s when the Soviet economy, the Russian economy, just goes, yeah. it tanks. Yeah. Right? And a lot of the Soviets, they tanked. Yeah. The, so there's a sense of, what are we going to do here? Yeah. Right? What are yeah. we going to do with this? I mean, you you had people starving in Russia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it was, uh, uh, do we engage this in some yeah, way? Yeah. Right? And, is there, and I think there's always a fear. Always was a fear. And it, and it was a reality for Yeltsin that... They'll go back. Yeah. You know, that they'll go back to communism because yeah. there were people who wanted to do that. Yeah. I've met people in Europe a couple years ago who said those were the good old days. Yeah, right. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, and so there was that fear. So there, there's a tension there that this democracy that Yeltsin's trying to create is very tenuous. Mm. And it could very well go the wrong way. And Yeltsin's not exactly Jefferson here either, yeah, yeah. right? He's not, he's democratic, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's not thinking in those ways. And there's a fear of, well, what happens if Yeltsin loses and we're, we're in a bad way? Do we want some, can, is this a chance to increase our buffer? Yeah. yeah. You mean from Europe? For Europe to increase their buffer from Russia in right. case Russia falls back. And if we yeah, already have right, right. Poland and, and Latvia and Lithuania and Ukraine, we got a nice little buffer yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the other argument. This is the other side of saying this is, yeah, I'm sorry, Russia. I know you don't want us to have a buffer, but you had a nice buffer for a long time. <laughs> you had a buffer from East Germany all the way to your border yeah. for 40 odd years. Yeah. Yeah, you you understand the game as well as we do. We just happen to have won this yeah, one. Yeah, you know, and yeah. And I think I think there's some truth to that, especially if you see the lot a lot that's made of Vladimir Putin's heritage in, in the KGB. That there are people who are seeing this connection back to the communist state, which is not a fair understanding. I don't think of Putin all the way down, right. at least on many levels, but maybe on his authoritarian. But that there does this fear that yeah, that Russia and and I think this is probably where from you know even Bush two and Obama this idea that and I think you see this a lot in Bush. Both of them were this sort of neoconservative view that capitalism, free markets, and democracy will win out. Mm-hmm. So if we just put pressure on these states, they'll trip into this, and mm-hmm. that'll put... And remember, you remember all the protests that went on when, when Putin first came into power and then swamped the Constitution and rewrote it. There were all of these... I won't name the name of the, of the female band that played because we're a polite company here. 
that created all these stir in, in Russian yes. society. And Americans read that to say, aha, the Russian people are becoming democratic. Yep. And so all we have to do is put NATO pressure. Yep. That government will collapse and in its place will bloom this beautiful democratic free market sort of pro-civil rights and I state. Think that, that sort of, so one, that is a sort of maybe a Pollyannish way. It's right. not really understanding who the Russian people are. Right. Uh, the other thing, too, is it can also go into almost this end of history idea, right? That yeah, Francis Fukuyama. Yeah, this idea that this is where everything's heading anyway. Yeah, it's all going So there. let's just help it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 you know, Russia will might kvetch a bit, but eventually they're going to get on board. History will have its and, way. And history is, you know, the arc of history is bending towards, towards justice, justice and democracy and, and yeah. the American way. And we can right. put this pressure on them. And, you know, so that is one of the arguments that's out there. Right. You will hear scholars make that case. Yeah. I think if, you, if, you're, if you're looking around, there's a guy named John Mearsheim who's doing this. Yep. Um, and the other one is Stephen Cohen, who's now yep. dead. But Cohen, um, I think he was out of, was he out of Yale? Mm-hmm. But Cohen made that, made that argument back in 14 and 15 that actually it's the West is driving this thing. So on the first historiographical approach. And one more book. There's right. one book called One Square Inch. Uh, okay. That that does get into gets into the weeds of this development from I would say uh, ninety one till about two thousand and ten or so two thousand okay. right it doesn't actually cover the Obama years okay. so it really takes it a stop sort of the Bush years okay. uh, I don't know if anyone has done a book yet on the Obama policy in yeah, yeah. Ukraine yeah I think yeah Steve Cohen may. He got, touches on it. He touches on it, yeah, and some of some of the some of that history in the in the Yelt, in the late Yeltsin early yeah. early. Yeah, Putin. but I think this book One Square Inch is uh, very good. It's very detailed as to just all the conversations taking place from ninety one through, and even yeah. getting into how Clinton and Yeltsin would drink scotch together, yeah. and you know, it gets down to that layer, that yeah. level. So yeah, so so look around. You'll see it. Again, you look for those names. Anything that talks about the expansion of NATO, anything that talks about the the maiden riots in 2014 yep. as being insignificant. These are where those arguments come. So There's a Netflix documentary on that one. Okay. Yeah. So that's the, that's that's historiographical method number one. Yeah. Uh, another another one, and probably what seems to me the more popular one in most of the press as, as I'm seeing it, is that the reason for this. Let's go back to your initial, and this is more the sort of American centric one, is that you had roughly these peaceful places coexisting. You know, Ukraine was just doing its thing and being its own business and looking to be Republican. Then you had this wacko tyrant who was a KGB agent who was evil. Um, he didn't have Trump's hair, but maybe had his mentality. Mm. Um, and he just he's insulated. He's angry. He's narrow minded. Um, he hates other people. He's been wielding power for a long time. Power corrupts. He's isolated. Power corrupts slightly. He's isolated. He poisons people. He poisons people. And he's created yes men in some way around him that at this point, He's fixated, and I see a lot of that word, he's fixated on Ukraine, and he's making things up about them, making up that they're nationalists, making things up they're fascists, making things up that they're killing Russians, so that he could justify for his people that he, in order to build his own grandeur, probably to recreate the, the Soviet Union when, when Russia was once great, mm-hmm. is now he's just launching this, this mindless campaign into Ukraine to assert his own authority, build up his own empire before he dies, and make Russia great again. Without the hat. I haven't seen one. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. It's, I've it's seen the, the phrase. It's and... the crazy autocrat. Yeah. It's the crazy autocrat um, uh, historiography. It's very simplistic. Yeah. Um, you know, that this guy poisons people. Uh, he And again, a lot of this stuff is not necessarily untrue. It's not necessarily untrue. Right? It, it, it is true. Some of it is true. Uh, but it's, it's, it, it does give you this picture that, you know, Ukraine was just sitting there, uh, kind of just living the American dream. 
waiting to get into NATO. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Putin's got 100,000 troops on the border. Yeah. And where did this come from? I mean, this is how some of our students have really, they, they, yeah. because we weren't following the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there is sort of the crazy Vladimir narrative, <laughs> right? right, right. That, you know, he he Vlad goes off every once in a while, yeah. and 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 then and that that is a narrative that's there, right. um, and oftentimes that can be married to the narrative I just gave, yeah. in the sense that well he's he's going off, but he's going off because NATO's been pushing his yeah, buttons for right, a while, right? right? That's that's right. one of the. Yeah, arguments. and this, and this argument, the idea of the like crazy Vlad. Let's use that one. I yeah, like that one, yeah. Mark. The crazy crazy Vlad argument, I think, it has a long heritage. Like post World War II, trying to figure out all the complexities that led Germany into World War II were mostly defined by what we saw in the Holocaust mm -hmm. at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that got overshadowed by this massive bloody event. And the argument was that's so irrational that I'm not going to try to find a rational reason for it. So we go back to Mein Kampf, and we always see pictures of Hitler wide-eyed yeah. and on drugs and crazy. And, and this is Hannah Arendt. We, we talked about her book on totalitarianism. I think it's called The Rise of Totalitarianism. Yeah. Where she makes the argument that totalitarianism is usually the result of some strong personality mm -hmm. that through power over other people gets them. And then all of a sudden you get a yes group around you that then goes broad more broadly. But really at the heart, architecture of it is some person who's so angry and so selfish, so greedy, so mean, so ugly, maybe even psych psychotic mm -hmm. in some degree, that they're able to, to create these entire narratives that get us to go off and kill Jews. Yeah. And while, and, and again, so, so that, that narrative is very persuasive in some ways because it's fairly simple and clear mm -hmm. and partly true. I mean, I think we can see some of these things yeah. in, in Putin. And, and, and I'll say one other dimension where this is probably true and this probably overlaps with another historiographical method. There is a tendency in Russian history to accept that as a leader. You tend to accept people who have power mm -hmm. as a leader. We don't understand that in the West. We're very suspicious of power, but that's not necessarily a Russian or Eastern view. Good point. China itself not overly sympathetic to democracy. Right, right? Right. They like central power because that's the better capturing of their culture and the use of their of their influence. So I think you've got some things working for this historiographical method. You've mm -hmm. got some truth about Putin, the way yep. he's created yes-men around him. Yep. And it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us that he'd be doing this. But then, of course, that historiographical method also misses other things, quite possibly, if we reduce it down to it, that. It does, and it misses. So let's go to the, the, um, the other side of the... NATO's over eagerness. Mm. Uh, the other argument we've seen is that well, actually, the Soviet states were as con were afraid of Russia. Mm. You know, they they were coming to us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we weren't as, we weren't exactly playing hard to get. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, the, the, this was not something we had to push upon them. That the Soviet states who had experienced the Soviet Union wanted to be part of the West. Yeah. They wanted to be part of Europe, and that was really what was driving this. Mm. And uh, and if, if if Russia goes back to its old ways, right? This is in the this is before two thousand. Um, we want to have a buffer, but I think once Vladimir got in, it was probably the policy change because okay, he's not a communist, but he's a problem, mm. and mm. we got to deal with this. Mm. And so the way we deal with this is we will accept. You know, we're going to stop playing hard to get. We're going to accept mm. these places, and and then I think when we get to Ukraine particularly in 2014, there's some pretty good evidence that the United States, whether through the CIA and the Pentagon, were actually helping yeah. to to bring about revolution yeah. and, and just... And, and, and a this coup. Is, and this was a method in, in the Cold War as well, in Hungary and Prague. Nothing I mean, new. No, it really <laughs> we wasn't. We did it in Italy. We did it in Turkey. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam. Iran. Right, right. yeah. So it, 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 is a, it is a style. 
of of, of historiography or of, of a method that happens. And but again, you can see like we, we just gave you like four or five different explanations here. And then there's this other one too. Okay. And it, it's 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 the the new Rome. You want yeah. to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. The new Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the third Rome. The, the third Rome. Yeah. This this idea that um, I talk about this in church history. You know, you have Roman. You have the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, and then of course the Western Empire falls, and but Constantine had already moved his capital to Constantinople. So at one point there are two Roman capitals. Right. The Western Empire falls; it is just Constantinople. Right. They don't see themselves as Byzantines; they see themselves as Romans, right. right? They we call them Byzantines. We call them Byzantines, right? <laughs> at one point they even tried to recapture the empire. Yeah. They didn't do it, but they right. tried. Uh, maybe that's a lesson from history that the emperors <laughs> always seek the empire size they had before, um, and 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 then once that fell after the invasion of the Turks in the 15th century, um, by this point the Slavs had been Christianized and the Orthodox Moscow's Church had spread. And Moscow right. really saw itself as the Third Rome. Yeah. Right? It's this is where it is now. Yeah. This is the space, and. And this this even goes back to I think Roman or Roman Russian thinking. And even if you think of what does the Roman czar, what does that what does that mean? That's a Russification. It's Caesar. Yeah, it means Caesar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you can see this sort of this idea, yeah. but it's it's not Roman in the Western sense. It's it's right. still geographically. You made that great point of the symbol of the of the czar looking oh, both yeah. directions. It's always been this sort of juxtaposition between the East mm. and the West. Mm. At times, they want to play with the West. Right. At times, you know, they they want to get 18th century like France and right. Versailles, so they get powdered wigs. Right. You know, and then there's other times where they they really do play more to their Eastern strength. And I think even as a nation, you and I have yeah. found that there's people in the East who really don't see them, in Eastern Russia, who yeah. really don't see themselves as part of the West. They're no, that's Eastern. Right. That's right. Uh, and, but I do think if we follow this third Rome sort of breadcrumb, there could be a sense here where Russia really sees itself as another option, That's right. right? You have the West, you have Asia, right. and then you sort of have this pan-Slavic Russian way right. of doing business right. and, and living life. That's right. And and so it's possible that that maybe this is something that Putin is going for, right? He, yeah. He's making, and again, he could be using it as a smokescreen for other things. I, I don't know. Right. But there's a real possibility that the third Rome way is a way to go. Now, why don't we talk about the article you and I read um, with um, the the author who basically said Russia's always been this way. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, if I I want to, I, I you're right. That's it. That's and I've, maybe you're tying that in. Let me just go back and say something again about that because I think you're right. In fact, we just sort of the Orthodox Church patriarch of the Orthodox Russian Church um, come out and say something like that. Right. This is this is this is part of Rome. This is part of Russian culture that's tying back yeah. into the great inheritance of the yeah. of the Roman civilization. Why, why that sound, I found why that sounds so unfamiliar to students is because Americans don't see themselves in the Roman tradition, only vaguely abstractly. Yep. Western one student said, why do we still go back to the Romans? Now, well, we, we like these ideas of republic, and we feel those are unique in history, blah, blah, blah. But for Europeans... We'll have some architecture. Yeah, and we like the architecture. Look at our capital building. Yeah. It's all Greek and Roman. But, but if you go to Europe... In, in the consciousness of Europe, you go one or two options, civilization or barbarism. And it's not always clear in history mm -hmm. that civilization was going to win. Mm -hmm. You had civilization under Rome for all of its flaws. It did things. And then it collapsed into the Middle Ages. So you got the Dark Ages prior, a little Greek empire that collapses. Then you get the Romans appear. And you got civilization, law and, and poetry, writing, literature, history 
cla- all of these wonderful things happen, and then they they crash in the Middle Ages. That the psychological impact of that crash yeah. is still being felt. Yeah. Where who's going to pick up the pieces? Because yeah. this could linger in the Dark Ages for another two thousand years if yeah. we don't get it right. Right. So the Europeans, I think, in the you know coming out of the out of the Middle Ages, picked up on this idea that now through modernization, industrialization, democracy, nationalism. And this is what the Germans developed. They developed the concept. And of even third before brain. that, Charlemagne wanted to do that. Charlemagne did it. In fact, yeah, yeah. in fact, the Rome, the the Germans, claimed Charlemagne yeah. as setting up the Third Rome in Berlin or yeah. Aachen at the time. Yeah. So the head of the leader of the German state was the Kaiser, which is Germanification for yep. Caesar all over. Again. Yeah. So, so you have the Kaiser and the Czar. Okay, two Both are, are <laughs> right. Yeah. And here and here's where this goes really down deep, and and and, and maybe we've not paid. And I think you're right to pay attention to this is that for Europeans, and I still think the Europeans have this, they won't use the same term, but I think for the Russian, civilization is a delicate thing that is only held on to by heritage. Hmm. And some people have the right to hold that. And if they don't, if they don't do what it takes at the end of the day to hold this, this is all going to collapse. Now, hmm. we, we live in a very optimistic Western mindset that says, oh, this will never collapse. We'll always have food plenty. We'll always have peace and safety. But for many people, especially in Europe, their consciousness, their memory is like, no, this ain't going to last. So if we don't hold it, the decadence of Europe, mm-hmm. the says, decadence of the West, decadence of the West is going to ride this down to transgendered and crazy, you yeah. know, whatever, whatever, until the whole thing collapses in yeah. disaster. Which is some of the lines that are coming out of Russia. That's correct. And so we, and so this messianic civilization talk yeah. that we are the inheritors of the Roman success, and if we fail, yep. oh West, yep. you will pay. Yes, Ukraine's going to go badly. People are going to die. We're going to save human civilization. Yes. So we can sacrifice Ukraine. And if need be. If need be. We have to save civilization and God is on our side. And and, and the Orthodox and, Church is playing into yeah, that. This is another area, too, that I think is hard for Western Protestant Christians to get. Uh, because uh, most of the time you take a church history class, even in seminary, you rarely touch the Orthodox Church. Right. That's right. Um, I kind of make that my mission to make sure that gets that at least the word there's a whole nother third yeah yeah hold on a third wing of the church and and because what's interesting in that little piece of history it explains maybe why the bishop of of rome is opera i'm sorry moscow is operating differently when the roman empire falls in the western empire the there's no emperor looking over the pope's shoulder yeah you have various sort of Barbarian yeah. empires vying for this, right? But they, you don't have it. There's no defense. There's, Pope Leo's, right. Leo's protecting Pope Leo. The Pope <laughs> actually fills the political yeah, void that's right. and, 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 and spends most of their time actually becoming a political equal that's right. with these various empires and would do that. Whole Middle Ages, whole exactly, story. Exactly, even into the 19th century. Right. Right? So, but when you go over to Constantinople, yeah. because they didn't fall, the emperor was always right. above the bishop. Right. You know, the bishop, and there were bishops who would try to be prophetic and push back and usually didn't go well. Right. But there was a different structure of church and state right. uh, where, you know, there was definitely church and state were not separate in, in the West. Right. But in the, in the new Rome, it was tighter. Yeah, um, very tight. And it was also and different. served national purposes. It did. And this is also another piece that, just because when the Roman Empire falls, and yes, the Roman the church is there, it does not mean that everybody in the Western Empire are Christians. Yeah. There's still lots of pagans there. Yeah. It takes time to Christianize the West yeah. uh, and Christianize Europe. But in, in, so there's a different 
operation. There's a different way the church in the Orthodox tradition sees yeah. itself yeah. Um, in relationship to the state. That's right. And I think that this is sort of the the tension we're seeing in. And the other thing we got to remember is the Russian Orthodox Church is very good at surviving. Yeah. The fact that they still exist after 70 years of communism yeah. is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a big deal just in and of itself. But this, if you, if that's the idea, if this is sort of the third, we'll call this sort of the Russian third Rome sure, approach, sure. then okay, you, you know, if one God's on your side, sure. you can get away with doing all sorts of. of this is the other thing I think has probably the West, and I, I'm going to mention a name that gets you a little nuts, but just go with it. Is I'm is, is Benedict Anderson? Oh. Yeah, yeah, the Imagine Community. Yeah. Right. And, and we have all sorts of problems with that book, but I'm just going to cherry pick the imagined community. Sure. Where in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the European uh, nations, oftentimes, because they are more homogeneous, Ukrainian, Russian, French, they start to take on this is the community. This yeah. is how we imagine. And I think what you just said, the cultural artifacts are part of that. Yeah. If you don't speak French this way, you're not part of the community. America, it's a very different place. The yeah. imagined community, we really shouldn't even be together. Yeah. Right? We're basically together because we agree on a certain type of government. Yeah. And and we've always we you could argue that since 1787 when the constitution was ratified, we've been debating on who's in the community and who's oh, out. Yeah, no, right? it's true, yeah. Um, but I think I, most of the book is not helpful. That concept is helpful. <laughs> I get you. I get yeah, you. And, and I think that's an important piece for us to see, too, that we can't understand those dynamics. Yeah. We, we just look at this as pure barbarism, and yeah. why would you do yeah, this? And if, and if you're not clear on this, and I've had students go, because we've done the, the, the Greek uh, War of, for Independence in 1821 against the Turks, and sort of look at, for the first time, they put together this national identity, which had not existed since they had fallen to the Romans. Right, The Greeks had always been a subjugated people since then, whether it was the Romans, the Turks, it was somebody. They, they had to invent this idea that we're a Greek people, we're our own nation, and they wedded it with the Orthodox Church. And I, So we look at the rise of nationalism as the first one, really, that you see after Napoleon is the Greek Civil War in 1821. And some students went over to, to uh, Greece, and they came back, and they said, you know, when you go into any Orthodox church, the Greek flag is everywhere. Hmm. The Greek national flag and the Orthodox church are the same thing. Hmm. And, they were, and they were really put out, because here, if you go to a church and see an American flag up on stage, you know, an old fundamentalist church that you and I went to, mm -hmm. Christian flag on one side of the stage, yeah. American, we sort of distasteful. Now. Yeah, we, that's, and even then it was like, well, one is trying to keep the other one from falling badly. Right. So the Christian is trying to keep this up. And what, but but for there, the Orthodox Church are exactly right. The national identity is tied, mm -hmm. yeah. culture and everything, to the religious expression in the church. Yeah. And if that is as deep as it, I, th I think it actually is, mm -hmm. then there's some merit to saying that for the Russians to lose or for the Orthodox Church to fail and the, and the state to fail could be the end of something that could have been very positive, like civilization or the third yeah. realm. Now, hey, let, oh, sorry. No, I want to. I want to go on to the to the last one because I think you made you make a good observation. I didn't mean to distract from it, um, which is: is this just what Russia does? Yeah, is this just, is this what, just what Russia does? Yeah, this Russia's never. They've always been. Uh, they're given to autocracy. The, well, they're given to autocracy, and the West was foolish to ever think they could woo them anyway. Right, <laughs> it right. Like, don't you history know wasn't going to bend that far? Yeah. Russia is always going to have one foot in and one foot out of the West. Yeah. So uh, why are you antagonizing them? That but one way to go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because if you think this is going to lure them in into the arc of history, <laughs> right. 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 your arc isn't right. Right. Um, right. And you don't know enough about how that, you know, so that there's a different. And that's and I think so if Russia is a state that one has its own identity, 
has a very mixed relationship with the West. And then on top of it, um, and I do think that you could also say this, is they may look as if their their fellow Slavs had been seduced Mm. by the West. Right, right, right. And they have been, in many ways, Russia has been, some ways, not a lot of ways, economically... I just, I'm... Here's here's this thing where you and, and I'm going to go back to what you said at the beginning in our conversation about historiography. Probably the wiser approach is to layer all of these. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's there's a truth to all of these things interacting in weird moments and places and spaces. I think there is something uniquely uh, unique about the Russian people that they're not going to accept democratization and Westernization. Right, right. And no matter how you push NATO or I don't know phone apps or smartphones on them, you're not going to get that cultural shift. You can add to that, um, you know. Um, Putin, who has insulated himself and is obviously warlike and polemical and getting older and maybe nervous about us. And you got to weave into that the fear of NATO that's been building on the border. Um, I, I think I think you could take all of these, right, Dr. Draper, somehow and layer them in and go, yeah. all right, there's a complex reason yep. why all of this. And, and if you attempt to accept only one of these yep. reductionistically, the solution and here, and I'll, I'll ask you this one to tie this conversation up. We've only been talking about Russia in this. We're trying to explain Russia. Russia about Ukraine. <laughs> Yeah. And then the historiographical method on Ukraine, Dr. Draper, to me, is appalling that somehow they are a free, democratic, elected, you know, law-abiding society. It is the most, I think, by measurement, the most corrupt government in, in Europe, on top of which it does house some radically fascist, violently nationalistic organizations that are now being championed as if they're Minutemen from the American Revolution. Yeah, yeah. So it's not only that we don't have a fair sense to understanding of Russia, there's complexities there, but it seems to me we haven't even talked about no, the complexity no. involved with Ukraine. Well, and then you look at even the history of Ukraine with dealing with the Germans and then yeah. dealing with the Russians right. and then dealing with the Russians again. And and even the, there was a... There's a book that will be on our list. The author talks about even the Cossack tradition. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Back to in the 17th century. The so you're right. Riots there's, the there's, just, there's a long yeah. story here. And there's a, there's been some tension between Ukrainians and Russians for a long time. Right. right. Uh, so you're right. So there's multiple historiographies. There's multiple ways of looking at this. And then the other piece, too, and this is maybe a comparison with Russia and with the Middle East, is that you know, if you think of where the Enlightenment happened, right, you know, it happened in That's right. Prussia happened in Berlin, it happened in Paris, it happened in London, right? Uh, Denmark. It didn't happen in Moscow. That's right. You know, they could come in and dip in and maybe play with some of it, but it wasn't as if, like, Kant was from Moscow. Yeah. Um, It wasn't, so, or that that, that Locke was from Baghdad. So it it is a different relationship with some of these ideas. That's right. Uh, but I think that might be one of the mistakes we make. There's a naivete thinking, well, everybody really just wants That's right. this. That's right. And if we can just give that to them, wouldn't that be lovely? Right. And, and and the other thing is, too, I, I was even looking at some of the history of Ukraine and some of the former Soviet states as they moved into democracies. It was a real challenge because yeah. they had spent so many years in a system where might makes right, where yeah. corruption is... The things that we would say are corruption. Just standard now, again, operating procedure. And listen, I am not saying they're more corrupt than, you know, <laughs> we've got our own corruption problems. I'm not, I'm not, not, but the way government operated in those spaces and the culture was so different that the democracy would never look yeah. like it looks like in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah, or true. in London or yeah. in Paris. Yeah. It would have to have its own accent. It would yeah. have to have its own flavor. Right. 
And are you okay with that? Yeah. Um, well, and now you're okay with that. Do you realize what you're fighting for in this case? And everybody wants Ukraine to survive and Ukrainian people to survive. But but what comes out the other end of this? Because this is going to polarize Ukrainian society too. And, and the East and West are already divided, have been for some time. They're across murders and massacres going on in yeah, 2014. Yeah. It, at some point, what you're getting behind may not be the kind of thing you really like to champion. Not that the war shouldn't end and right. not that... But if, if, we're, if we're all in this belief that, boy, the Ukrainians are just fighting for independence, and as long as we gave them, could we actually, in doing so, create a state that's more violently nationalistic than anything we've seen since 1945? Is that possible? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe the forces of liberality are there strong enough. But I'm not sure. I think the jury's out on that. And th th isn't this the reality, right? You, you can go in with certain intentions, and sometimes you make allies with people you otherwise wouldn't yeah. because you're co-belligerents. Yeah. And you could be creating more problems yeah. down the line. But yeah. you can't even perceive them. You don't yeah, even sure. know yeah. what those could be because all of this is sort of speculation yeah. because humans will always wiggle out of your of your system they always do <laughs> every always time do. every time so I, I feel like you know we've been going on it for about an hour and i feel like we've that's good for a short podcast it is it is <laughs> uh but i feel like we've given uh some framing for people that you know kind of look for some of these different ways people are describing it they're not the only ones yeah uh there is one that's sort of coming out of china now it's like well how dare America say anything about invading a sovereign nation? They did that to Iraq, and we opposed them in, in the U.N. Right? Okay. Um, you're right. Okay. I got you. But you you can see this. Uh, that's a narrative that will yeah. come out as well. Um, and, and I don't think, I think at the other basis, we at no point are we saying what Russia is doing is justified, yeah. is right. Uh you know the 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 Vladimir's just he's just misunderstood. Right. right, uh, right. No, it, this this but it is complicated, and there were things done by everybody. Yeah. Uh, but there are some elements about Russia that Americans would always find abhorrent. Yeah. Yeah. And they just would rebel against it. Right. Uh, and that's just the way part of it is. And what so. and what we're really thinking through again is discernment and being wise and being able to make judgments. Yeah. Um, over overreacting. I I I think. If I were to say it, I've said it before, the number one sin in my mind, not moral sin, but historical sin that people make is reductionism. And reductionism, it's your right, but you weren't alone right. Yeah. But when you think you're alone right, you make really severe decisions. I think probably what scares me most about this moment, and then someone said this, and I can't remember the author, uh, made an argument about this. Uh, there's a guy down at Georgetown University. I have, I have it in the in the source guide. Uh, but the, the argument is that... that if, if you reduce these things down, you overreact on these things and mm. you end up creating problems. I mean, it, so many things that looked to make so much sense in 1932 and 1933 in Germany now make no sense. Mm. But they made a ton of sense when you believe Stalinist Russia was the greatest evil in the history of yeah. mankind. Yeah. All of a sudden, Hitler made a lot of sense to you. But you overreduced all the problems or many of the problems you faced into right. capitalism's destroying us and communism wants to, wants to eat our children or burn our churches. Yeah. And I feel like what's happening in this moment is that rather than slowing down and being discerning and being humble, yeah. we're becoming overly certain about how we think about things. And then we're going to start reducing. And we're going to find ourselves at odds with one another because we don't have the imagination to think, maybe this is bigger than I think it is. Maybe this is more complicated. Maybe I need to be humble and go, I know this is wrong. I'm not sure why I'm willing to listen and learn. Mm. But I think if we catch ourselves in a moment going, this is so wrong, I refuse to listen. Yeah. Then if someone says something against me, should I listen to them? Yeah. Maybe I should just shut them down. Yeah. Maybe maybe I've got a camp I can put them in because they're so evil I don't want mm -hmm. to have to listen to them. And mm -hmm. I, 
So I think what we're what we're driving at again, and why I think history is so important in a moment like this, is not to not make moral judgments, as you've made plainly clear. Yeah, but to, is take yeah. the moment to be discerning yeah. and to be wise. And hopefully, as you hear these approaches, you read the media and go, "Okay, I'm being duped into something that's too simplistic." Yeah. If you can if you can say that, I think you'll find if you go looking around, you start to say, "Oh, that was too simple." Now I've said, "But that one's too simple." Yes. And you get it. Not that you can't make judgments, and you have to. But you have to be discerning, and I think that's what you we're do, and that's about. that's really what we're is giving you just a snapshot of what is a rich, deep historiography. Yeah, um, there are people we are not experts in in, in this field. No, uh, there are people who've devoted their entire lives to the study of Russian, yeah. Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, Ukraine. There's 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 professors yeah. that are just yeah. scholars of Ukraine. Uh, but what we've tried to do is 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 do the best we can to sort of read them and, and absorb some of this and say, these are some of the framings that we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the media in America is giving you a very simplistic framing. And, but I think the, the simplistic framing works in this regard is you're watching pregnant women be blown up. Yeah. That's clear. And, and that is clear. <laughs> that's clear. And it's then clear you're evil. looking that's... for the bad guy who yeah, did this, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's, that's sort of it. And, uh, at no point, regardless of what America did or didn't do since 91, is that valid. Right, right. Amen. Yeah. So, well, thank right. you. Thank, thank you, Mark. You.